Well, I want to begin with a little thought experiment. I was going to have you write something in your uh, outlines, but I thought this would be a little bit more fun. And that is this. I want, go ahead. And we're going to, I know this might feel a little more like Sunday school for a quick moment, but is, is that okay? I know not everybody got to go to Sunday school today. So if you could describe the American dream, what is it? What is the Amer- this is the interactive part. This is the Sunday school part. What is the American dream? What is entailed in that? What? Rugged individualism. Okay. All right, someone say something over here. Life of the rich and famous. Oh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay. Sorry, my ears are not quite working right today. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Prosperity. Oh, yeah. More is better. What else? Freedom. Okay. What else? What? A place to call home. What? Opportunity. Opportunity. All right. So now thinking about all those things, and we could add a whole lot more things like success. We could add wealth beyond measure. We could all sorts of other things. What is the Christian dream or the American dream for the Christian? How different is the American dream for the Christian? Does Less selfish, okay. What else? Do not love the world. All right. What else? How different is the American dream for a Christian? Bible centric, okay. What else? Peaceful, hopefully. Yeah. I want us to just, I want you to have that thought kind of running through your mind because one of the things that's going to come up as we talk through the chapter, the section of the chapter that Brian read, is the way that our culture works in our lives, the way that our culture impacts our faith. So if you have your copy of God's Word and want to open to Micah chapter 5, we're going to begin uh, in the second part of, of, my, of verse 5. Um, And if you remember, we've been talking for several weeks now with a little break for Easter about the book of Micah. Micah is now finishing up his second sermon. Um, And it, it, you know, so the first sermon was roughly chapters one and two. Second sermon is chapters three, four, and five. And then the last sermon is chapters six and seven. We'll get to those over a few weeks. And, And in this time, Micah has been calling out against the wickedness of Judah and Israel, and he's been promising them a punishment, a discipline from the Lord. He's been telling them, this is going to come, and it's going to come with outsiders invading your land and taking you away. The northern kingdom will be taken away by the people of Assyria. The southern kingdom would be taken away by the people of Babylon, roughly 150 years after Micah prophesied. But Micah also prophesied and and promised a restoration. He said, hey, we we looked at this a few weeks ago as as the redeemer, as the restorer was going to come and bring back some sort of semblance, bring back godliness and righteousness to the people of Israel and Judah. But that restoration isn't always going to look the way that we hope, the way that they hope, the way that they they wanted to go back to the future to the past glory and yet we realize it's going to be so much better so much different in the in the future that God has ordained and so in this section one of the things i think we see is we have two main characters one is we have the enemy and this would be the people of assyria the nation of assyria is seen as an enemy and this enemy has a role to play 
in God's sovereign plan. But we also see a second character in this, and that is the remnant of God's people. Those people who've been saved, those people who've been set aside, those who are still faithful to all that he has called them to. So these two players have roles in God's, God's work and, and, what he's, and ultimately how God is working and moving in their lives. So if you want to follow along with your outline, if you're, this is where the blanks begin. And, and so we're going to start with the role of the enemy, the role of the enemy in the, in the life of the people of Judah. We see this in verses 5 and 6. It says, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. And when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Assyria is clearly going to have a role to play, a part to play in God's sovereign hand. And it may be, as I, as I look at this and, and in reading some commentaries, it seems like it's a three-part plan. The one is the invasion, and that's the easy part to see. Assyria is going to come in with armies, with weaponry, with horses, with all these things, and destroy the nation of Israel, the, the nation of Judah. They're going to destroy cities, and they're going to pull people out and bring them back to, their, back to Assyria. And I think it's challenging for us to look at the way, to, for us to consider that in God's sovereign plan, he would use a godless pagan people to be his hand of judgment on his own people. And sometimes God uses mysterious means to get our own attention. Sometimes God uses godless means to make us pay attention to what he wants to do in our lives. But I think in, in addition to an invasion, the second thing we kind of see here is that, is that of an infiltration. See, not only is the nation of Assyria going to come in and destroy, they're going to pull them out. And now the people of Judah, the people of Israel, are going to be foreigners in a foreign land. And now they're going to be influenced by all of these other influences. There's this, this idea that you know, they would want to insert or they would want to assert their culture on the people of Judah. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, you know how that begins. It begins with, with uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, coming and taking and bringing out the young people from Judah, from Jerusalem, and taking them. Daniel and his friends are, are some of those guys, and they refused. In, even though they were in a foreign land, they refused to give up the ways that God had called them to. And I find it interesting here, if you notice what, what, uh, what Brian read earlier, it says that when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And I was puzzled by that this week because I thought, well, what is that? What, who are these kings? Who are these rulers? Who are these princes? A lot of the commentators basically said that these are more symbolic than anything, that these people who will reign, who will shepherd, who will lead will be godly leaders. It won't just be one person. We could look back in Israel's history, oh, we have David, or we have Josiah, or we have at times Hezekiah as our great leaders. It's not just going to be one. It's going to be a multitude of leaders leading the people, godly people who will be able to shepherd 
It will be in abundance. So on one hand, we, we see the invasion. On the other hand, we see the infiltration, their, their culture being imposed on the people of Judah. But then there's a third thing, and that, that is an initiation. You see, this attack is going to begin the process of God bringing judgment to the very nation that is attacking. It's going to be his means of bringing judgment to them. And we look at it, we say, how can God do all of these things, disciplining this group, causing this group to get strong because of the, the, the infiltration that's happening, and then initiating a judgment against the very nation that's judging the judged people? And you see it all kind of working together, and God and his sovereignty is doing it. But here's what I want us to think about. Now, I asked you at the beginning, what is the American dream? And I think this is where the idea of the American dream affects us, especially in that idea of the infiltration of the culture. How do we respond when the nation in which we live begins to invade and infiltrate God's people and tread in our homes, tread in our palaces? How do we respond when the cultural mandates are coming in and running in, in direct opposition to the ways of God? How much of the Christianity that we practice is true biblical Christianity and how much has been co-opted by our culture's values or even by our, our national identity? Consumerism, convenience, ease, success, achievement. Do we see those very same things in our hearts that we see in our culture? Or has it so infiltrated us that we don't see the difference? Will we buckle and surrender, giving way to the ways of our culture? Or will we be distinct? Are there things that set us apart from the world around us? God's people will face challenges, to be sure. And we will face challenges in our own land. And just, and just as Judah was taken as exiles... Even in their exile, they would have a job to do. So even, even as we may seem like exiles in our own land, and, and we've talked about that a, a while ago, there's a sense in which as the people of Judah, as they're taking off into another land, they now have a role to play. They have a job given by God. And in fact, I think they have a two-part job. And the first is this, that in this foreign land, they are going to play a refreshing role the refreshing role of the remnant. Look at what it says in verse seven. The remnant left in Israel will take their place among the nations. They will be like dew sent by the Lord or like rain falling on the grass, which no one can hold back and no one can re re restrain. Back in the early 1990s, I had a chance, had an opportunity to go to Chile on a mission trip. It was a really cool time. We were doing evangelistic drama ministry. And then one weekend, we got a chance to go up to the coast. Well, on our way up there, we passed through this desert. I wish I could remember the name of the desert. But, and while we were passing through it, while we were going near there, someone pointed out that this desert is, has the least rainfall of any desert in the world. It doesn't, it's not as big as the Sahara. It's not as sandy as that. It looks different. But, but there are people who actually live in this desert. And what I found out is that because, I mean, it had been decades since they had had rain. I know people talk about the fact that we're in a bit of a drought. You wouldn't know it after Saturday, especially those of you guys who live on 
on Spates Hill or in Westmont after the little tornado came through. But think about this. Imagine decades without rain. What would you do? How would you get water if you live in that area? Well, what the people in that area figured out is that we may not have rain, but we have dew. And so they would set up these massive things that would look like spider webs. And every night, these spider webs would collect dew. And they would collect it into sort of cisterns. And they would be able to use that for drinking, for eating, for washing, for cleansing. And they would have a means of survival. That dew that we might not even be able to see, we never see it fall. It's just there when you get up in the morning, right? Or when you let your dog out and it comes back in and his paws are all wet. The dew is just there. And that's what these people in Chile found out. And I think what, what's so interesting is that that is the role that God's people will play. That's the role I think that ultimately we play in our society, in our culture. So as, as God's people in, of Judah would go into these foreign land, they would have an influence in their captor's culture. And it will be unstoppable, like do. We can't predict when it's going to come. We can't predict how much. It's just there. It's scattered about, spread around, blessing, refreshing, reviving, permeating society. But think about this. That blessing, that, that role of refreshing that the people of Judah would play, that if, if we think about what they're doing, like acting like dew on grass, runs so counter to the way that we often think about opposition. When we look at the way that someone who is opposed to us, how we should treat them, our natural response is, let me cross my arm, let me protect myself, let me get away from them. And instead here, God is clearly saying, you're going to go into these people and you will be a blessing to them. You will be a refreshing to them. The prophet Jeremiah called the people of Judah in much the same way, preparing them for exile. Look, look at Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now keep in mind, the people of Judah were given a promise. They said, you're gonna go, but 70 years, I'm gonna bring you back. So imagine being one of these people of Judah. Now you're going against your will to a land that is not your own, knowing that, hey, pretty soon I'm, I'm going to come back. And yet God is telling them, when you go, don't just go gritting your teeth, crossing your arms, biding your time. Go be a blessing. Go make sure that place flourishes. Did you know that it was a little similar in the early church? There were people who were talking so much about Jesus returning. In fact, later on in this year, we're going to look at the book of Thessalonians. And there was some of that going on. The people in Thessalonica were, were looking, hey, why should I work if Jesus is coming back? Why should I cause any prosperity for the people around me if, if Jesus is coming back? He's coming back soon, so I'm going to sit back. Come on, Jesus. 
And yet that's not the role that God wants his people to play. So have you ever thought about the idea that God placed you where you are for a reason? You might be the Jew that he is using to bring life, blessing, refreshing to the places that you get to be. At home, in Westerly, in Westmont, Hunter's Run, Stony Creek, Tama, one and two and three and four. Urbana, Dickerson, Rockville, Boyd's, Bernie. What is your interaction like with your neighbors? Do they feel the refreshment that God has called you to have? Do my neighbors on the corner of Westerly and Whites feel the refreshment that God has called me to be like do in their lives? Are we walling ourselves off in our palaces? Or are we making it possible for our neighbors to be refreshed by us? Like a cold cup of water on a hot day. Or what about in your family? Are you blessing them with the hope of the gospel? But it's not just about where we live, it's about where, where we work as well, whether we commute or work from home. Our occupations are an assignment from God. What you do professionally, as you do it well, is an act of worship, act of honor to God. And it's the means by which God has given you and me to bless the world around us. So how are we doing at representing God, at being his ambassadors? Do our colleagues know more about our hobbies or the sports teams that we like than they do of the hope of the gospel that we say we are devoted to? Or what about at school? Students, I know it can be intimidating to let your faith be public. Do people know that you genuinely care about them? Well, you got to begin by caring about them. But do they know that you care? Can they trust you with their successes and failures? Do you pray for your teachers, your professors, your classmates? There's an opportunity on May 6th. Fellowship of Christian Athletes and a couple other organizations are, are pulling together a, a, a Jericho walk, seven laps around the, the high school track, 8 a.m., it's only a mile and a half, but seven laps, seven different prayers. And if you have available students, I want to encourage you to come. Come and pray for your schools. Pray for your classmates. Pray for your teachers. Imagine what would happen if people from every church in town that Carl prayed for were to gather there and we begin to be an influence, a refreshing, in a, in a better way in our society, in our community. So what does refreshment look like in those places, at home, at work, at school? It may be a simple conversation, telling someone that you care. It may be sitting with that person, that classmate, that coworker who is alone, maybe having a meal with them. It may be inviting someone over. Do we do that very often anymore? It may mean a front porch conversation or invitation to play golf or to join a book club. 
It may even mean inviting someone to come with you to church. How often do we do that? When, when Eric and Lynn were here, I, I, the people group that they so often minister to, they, the, frankly, the, the Muslims that live here in America, many would come to church if only they would be invited. But so often people just aren't inviting. That's a great question, Bobby. How come? Are we the refreshment that God has called us to be? But there's a second role that God's people, the remnant, would have in this exile, as they're in their existence as exiles. And that is a rending role, the rending role of the remnant. And this rending word comes from a guy named David Pryor in his commentary as he thought about what it is a lion does with its prey. Beginning in verse 5, or verse 8 rather, he says, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, and when, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. And I think this, this is one of those very difficult parts of Scripture to read when we look at the fact that there is destruction, there is judgment, there is pain. And there may have been times in Israel and Judah's past when they have had an opportunity to play a role like that in their captors' society. If you think about the book of Esther, if you've read that book, you know that that's a story of this young Jewish girl who's in, um, in another country. And she's brought up to a position of influence and she learns about the attempted genocide that's going to happen to all the Jewish people. And God in his sovereignty in a crazy turn of events allows the Jewish people to take vengeance on the very people who are going to kill them. Much like this lion treading on its prey. And we see other places in between the, the Old and New Testament, if you were to read the history of the Maccabees and, and how they got victory over some of their oppressors. But it's so interesting that when we look at the way that God moved the people of Israel from exile, it wasn't through fighting. When, they brought them, when he brought them back, it wasn't through a glorious battle. It was in very small and mysterious and crazy means. For instance, in the, in the book of Ezra, if you were to read that, you would find that it was actually a foreign king who said, Ezra, I want you to go back and, and I want you to do this again. God has called me to send you to go. Imagine a pagan god, pagan king saying, go, worship your God in, in that place. Or when we read about Nehemiah, who was so convicted about the condition of the city that he petitioned his king and said, oh, king, please let me go. Give me resources. Give me blessing that I might go and rebuild the city. And, and the king said yes. There were conflicts. There were challenges. But there was not fighting. And yet God allowed the people of Israel, people of Judah, rather, back. And as we look at the life of Jesus, our restorer, how he worked on earth and how he works in our lives today, how do we act as rending agents? Are we called to take up arms? Are we called to tre tread down and tear in pieces physically? And I think this is one of those places where we have to step back and say, where has American cultural values 
come into play in the church. I'm going to step on some toes, so get your toes ready. You may have in your mind, what about the Second Amendment? Right? The Second Amendment, it gives us the right to bear arms as citizens of the United States. They did that, the, the writers of the Constitution put that in there to protect us from an oppressive government. But as Christians, when we see our culture going against our values, is that a time for us to step up and take up arms and fight? Frankly, I think our rending role will be different. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You see, there will be something about our very lives that will be a rending agent in the lives of our, quote, enemies. There's something different about the way that we live, the values that we have, that people will look and say, hmm, what makes them tick? And Peter urges us, he says in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, in doing so, they will see the grace of God in our lives and the miraculous way that he works will rend them from their former ways by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and will, they will turn and trust in him. A weapon won't have to be drawn. Others will have a different response to the way that God's people act as godly people in a godless society. And Jesus warned his disciples of this in John 16, verses 2 to 4. He said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So, taking up arms Treading, living, how do we justify, how do we put all this together? And this is really more than what we can do in the time that we have left. But I want us just to think about a couple things. First of all, have there been just wars? I think probably. Are we called to take up arms as Christians? I don't think so. Not in a, not in a spiritual fight. There is way too much heart work heart surgery to be done in our nation for us to muddle weapons in this spiritual warfare. I think David Pryor has a helpful comment on this, stating that the remnant have this refreshing and rending impact among the nations solely because of their relationship with the Lord. They take on his character and impart something of his qualities wherever they go. The idea being that when we have our eyes on Jesus, our restorer, and when we point our enemies, 
eyes in his direction, then we get a chance to see how God is working in us and how God is working in them. And ultimately, lastly, how God is moving us from independence to God dependence. I want to just go through this quickly. You see, our sinful natures are content with self-sufficiency. And in many ways, we're striving for it. We're trying to stand on our own like that child. Those of you guys who've, who've had kids, you know what it's like to watch your children just begin to walk. And they want to begin to do it on their own. Some are a little more fearful. Some are going to take a longer time than others. But some practically come out of the womb wanting to run. And we want that independence. And I think in our culture, our culture says you want that, as James says, that rugged individualism. You be yourself. But as a nation, we don't want to depend on anyone else. As a people, we don't want to depend on anyone else. We want to have enough military strength to feel at peace. We want enough prosperity and financial security to buffer against any storm. We want it. We want to cover all of our bases spiritually by dabbling a little bit here and there in all of these other religious activities. And yet God wants us to trust in him. And he wants us and the whole world to return to him. And he has determined at some point under the leadership of Jesus, the restorer, the Messiah, the world will come to him. And Micah has prophesied about that. He said there's a day when everybody's going to come to the mountain of the Lord. They're going to come to learn and come to live. And so Micah concludes this section of his sermon and the book, and, uh, with these words in, in verses 10 to 14. He says, in that day, notice, Micah tells them he's going to cut off four things. I want you to pay close attention to what these four things are. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asher images from among you and destroy your cities." You see, in these verses, and I mentioned this in the, in the midweek email, there are four evils, essentially, that, that uh, one of the commentators notes that Micah is calling out. He's basically saying, first of all, God is going to cut off the nation's military dependence, their dependence on, on horses and chariots. And we have to recognize that when God is in the fight, there is no arsenal, no amount of arsenal, no amount of nuclear weaponry that can prevent God from accomplishing what he will. We've seen time and time again in the Old Testament where smaller, weaker, more feeble armies defeated greater armies because they were faithful to the Lord. And God's saying, I'm going to destroy those. Secondly, he's saying he's going to take away their strongholds. He's going to cut off their, their cities, their prosperity and wealth. You see, in these walled cities, they became like a veritable fortress. There was no connection to the land. There was only a defensive stance. But at what cost were they prosperous? Thirdly, he's cutting off their sorceries, their fortune tellers. These people, we might think about it as, as like those astrology, those palm readers who, who, who basically would say, yeah, your life is going to be like this. And so we just follow on someone else's ability to read our palm or to look in the stars and say, that must be your sign. And he's saying, I'm going to cut all that off. I want you to depend on me. And then finally, he says, I'm going to cut off your idolatry. Those things that you adore, those things that you've made with wood and metal and stone. So I'm going to destroy those things. 
so that you worship me. And ultimately, David, David Pryor kind of summarizes this. He says, so long as the people of God, so, so long as people called by the Lord continue to put their trust in military might or in any other human resources, Micah's vision of a time when war shall be no more remains a pious hope. So as God's people, are we trusting in those things, military might, our own prosperity, the fortune tellers that we have. I mean, people can't even hardly predict the weather. And yet we want to trust people about financial markets and what's going to happen here and there. Are we trusting in those things or are we trusting in God? There's so much that that we can look at and I want to just encourage you guys to, to think about where is our confidence? Are we trusting? Are we depending on God or are we depending on these things? Are we depending on God or or am I depending on my own personal strength? Am I depending on God or am I depending on my ability to secure my family financially? Am I depending on God or am I trusting in the forecast of the doom and gloom people who are going to say that X, Y, Z is going to happen? See, no matter what happens out here, we still get to be called. We are still called to be faithful to all that God is calling us to. So I want to just close with a couple thoughts. Steve, I'm jumping ahead a few pages on you. Sorry. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to ask, answer a couple of questions, and we did. How do you define the American dream, and how different is the American dream for a Christian? And one of the challenges that we face is that we are living as exiles in our own land. Whether we are born here or we moved here from somewhere else, we have to recognize that we are not of this world anymore. We get to be here until God calls us home, but we are not of this world. We are aliens and strangers in our own nation because of our citizenship in heaven. So the question becomes, have we become so so infiltrated by the values of our society that we dream the American dream? Or do we dream the radical things that bring refreshment and rending to the world around us? One of our, favorite, one of our family's favorite bands is the group called Switchfoot. And I love the, the lyrics of so many of their songs. They, they just have a way. These are Christian brothers who... Or they are a couple of them are real brothers, but Christian brothers to us who have a have music that has allowed them to go into secular venues and be heard. And in their song called "The American Dream," they he defines it as excess. Success is equated with excess. And in the chorus, he says this, or they 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 say this. They said, "I want out of this machine. It doesn't feel like freedom." This ain't my American dream. I want to live and die for bigger things. I'm tired of fighting for just me. This ain't my American dream. Are we dreaming? Are we living for what America says we should or what God expects us to? Let me pray for us.